Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Unfinished Tales class, the beginning of our second official Mythgard Academy class. I'm Corey Olson, uh, the Tolkien professor and president of the Mythgard Institute, and welcome. We have a full house here tonight. This is, uh, I think... Possible. Well, other than our uh, other than our Mythgard Institute webathon, which was an all day long affair, uh, this is the first time we've ever had a completely jammed uh, session here. So let me and yes, Sharon, thank you for reminding me. I have in fact pushed the record button. Dutiful students who remember former uh, uh, absent mindednesses on the part of the professor uh, are duly reminding me. Um, so yes, anyway, if uh, if you know somebody who's been locked out, I know that more people signed up for the session than we could have uh, here in the session with us live. We have set up a simulcast so they can at least watch uh, uh, live. They won't be able to participate uh, with the interface, but they'll be able at least to um, to, uh, to to watch along. So just tell them to go to the to the course page. I've been I just posted this uh, on my Twitter and Facebook feeds, but um, if you just wanted to tell people to the the the, the unfinished tales course page that has the um the uh the class schedule and everything there's a youtube uh uh embedded uh page which is just uh uh which is as i say s that, which is simulcasting it uh <laughs> dave kale wants an official twitter hashtag uh for the class uh mythgard academy and unfinished tales apparently dave kale has appointed this is our official uh our official hashtag for the class. Let me just quickly explain the interface for those of you who are new with us here. Um, uh, basically, the only thing that you really need to know about uh, uh, is on your uh, control panel there, the questions box. If you type into that and hit enter, I will see your comments right away. I really uh, love to get your comments and, uh, and, and, and be able to try to answer your questions during the course of the class. I like to be really interactive, which is one reason why I don't always get through everything I want to cover, but, um, but I really enjoy doing that. So uh, I would ask, though, of course, since there are quite a few of you here tonight, um, that you be understanding. I'm not going to be able to get to everybody's questions and comments. And also, uh, if you type really, really long comments, I'll almost certainly not have time to be able to read through it with everything else that I'm going to be getting here. Um, but <laughs> Brian, Brian Yoder is asking for one more week already. We haven't even started. We got like 13 classes to go. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Anyway, um, so I do want to encourage you to participate. One little thing that I wanted to mention there as well. If, um, if you want to comment on something that I'm talking about or, you know, sort of the particular issue or passage under uh, discussion, just go ahead and type in whatever it is that you want to say. If you have a, a, a totally unrelated question or you want to you bring up, you know, there's something else, you know, totally different that you would like to see me raise and bring up, um, you can go ahead and type that too. But if you would start it with, just start by typing the word topic and then a colon and then type your thing. That will help because um, all of the comments that you type are actually saved, so I can go back and look at them later. Um, and I'm going to be having, if you look at the course page, you'll see that I have scheduled in three additional um, uh, Q&A sessions. And those are basically places where I hope to be able to get to a lot of people's questions and, and, and comments that I wasn't able to get to during the sessions. I'm going to be kind of gathering those together, things I get by email, things that you guys bring up in the comment section. And I will, um, and I will uh, try to address some of those things uh, in our open Q and A sessions on Wednesday afternoons Eastern Time. Uh, not every week, but three times during the course of the term. So, um, so if, if you flag your your new topics with uh, that word, it helps me to it helps me to search for it 
later on. All right. Um, I wanted to just first, since this is the official beginning of, as I said, our second ever Mythgard Academy class, I, I want to take just a second to explain what exactly that is and what that means. The Mythgard Academy um, was a new initiative just started uh, here at the Mythgard Institute last fall, um, and the idea is to engage broadly to give people an opportunity to read through the books that they really want to talk about uh, and read carefully together. Let's just, let's all sit down and read through this book and, and talk our way through it, kind of after the model of what uh, we did in the Silmarillion seminar uh, back uh, two and a half years ago. For those of you who follow my feed, you'll, uh, you'll notice last night I posted, we just recorded, uh, re-recorded the lost Silmarillion seminar episode last night. We had a reunion episode after two and a half years. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, the, you know, so we're we're wanting to go through the favorite books that people uh, that people vote for. So we had a fundraising campaign so that we could raise uh, the funds to be able to put on these classes and to make them free and available for everybody uh, to participate in live and to be able to download recordings of afterwards. Uh, and the uh, Indiegogo campaign was was a, a wonderful success. We raised over $20,000 and uh, were able to run classes uh, for pretty much a full year here, so we're very excited about that. This is our second class. We did our Return of the King class uh, at the end of the fall. Uh, and now we're starting with Unfinished Tales. Um, and the way these are chosen, by the way, I'm not choosing these. Um, it may look like I am, uh, you know, because I'm the Tolkien professor and I've marched my way through the Lord of the Rings and now go moved on to Unfinished Tales, but I am not choosing this. I have no control at all. Uh, okay, not really much control um, over what uh, what books are chosen. The way it works is that everyone who donated at least $25 to our campaign has voting rights uh, for the Mythgard Academy, so they can, they, can, they can decide what we do. Everyone who uh, donated $100 or more is part of our Council of the Wise, who get together to decide. They, they nominate the finalists and present the slate of finalists to the voters, and then all of the voters vote uh, to decide uh, which books we're going to be talking about. And so far, we have had two improbably close and exciting <laughs> elections, uh, and in both of them, Tolkien narrowly edged out Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which is uh, which has been uh, the bridesmaid and never the bride in both of our elections so far, um, losing by a very, very narrow margin. Um, I imagine, I believe, that we are going to... Um, uh, probably, we're, I, I believe we're going to be doing a non-Tolkien book next time, um, based on what I hear from the electorate. Uh, but anyway, if you would like to be a part of that, you certainly, you still can. Our official campaign is over, but you know we are still accepting donations. If you want to be able to to to, to support this and then have a say in what we talk about, uh, you can donate uh, at our PayPal donate buttons um, on lots of pages. If you go to mythgard.org, m-y-t-h-g-a-r-d.org, you will find our PayPal button in a lot of places on the site, uh, and you can make a donation through there to qualify for the electorate. Anyway, so that is what we're doing and, uh, and how we got here. So without further ado, let us jump into Unfinished Tales. Before we get to Tour tonight, I want to start off with a kind of overview, because Unfinished Tales is a kind of complicated... In some ways, I find Unfinished Tales one of the most 
sort of complicated because most eclectic of all of these works that Christopher Tolkien has published. Um, the Children of Hurin is a little bit more straightforward, right? It's it's you know wanting to present the story of of Turin Turambar as a freestanding story that people can pick up and read as a novel without you know having to go through the whole Silmarillion. He wanted to present it that way because that was one of the ways that Tolkien clearly envisioned that story, as well as several others, including tonight's topic, Tour and uh, the Fall of Gondolin, but. Um, you know, and you've got the History of Middle-earth series, but, you know, and that sort of goes chronologically through the, 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 the work that, um, that Tolkien was doing on his, work, you know, the Silmarillion project and, and, and all of his other things over the course of his life. Unfinished Tales is much more of a mixed bag. Um, what is it? What's the point of Unfinished Tales? What are we getting in Unfinished Tales? Um, a, a lot of times, people think of unfinished tales as, you know, a place to, you know, a, a, a place where uh, Christopher Tolkien is giving us Tolkien's writings to help sort of fill in gaps in our knowledge um, of, especially the Lord of the Rings stuff, but also Silmarillion material to kind of provide us with some of that background lore that uh, Tolkien talks about. If you read the introduction. Um, uh, Christopher quotes the uh, the letters that Tolkien wrote when he was writing the appendices. We talked about these. Um, if you were in the last Mythgard Academy class, you'll remember uh, when we discussed the appendices, we talked about these letters, um, about how people kept writing him and asking for more lore and more background information and stuff. Is that is that what we're getting? Is that what Un- Unfinished Tales is? Well, partially. Kind of. Um, but But there's more than that, too. Some of the stuff that we're getting are stories which are written around the time of the Lord of the Rings, but don't actually have anything to do with the Lord of the Rings. So I want to start off by just getting a, 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 a little better picture of how these things fit together. The, the works in Unfinished Tales have been grouped um, based primarily on their ages, right? We've got the First Age material, the Second Age material, and the Numenor stuff, then the Third Age material, and then we get the, you know, those extra essays on the Druidon, the Astari, and the Palantiri. Um, that's, of course, a very sensible way to organize it, but that doesn't put them in anything like chronological order. When we read them in that order, which is the order we're going to read them in, um, we're kind of getting a jumble of some really late stuff and some earlier stuff, and how does this fit together, and how does it relate to the other things Tolkien wrote? That can be really confusing. Um, so that's what I want to sort of discuss and talk about here first. Um, the thing, though, I want to give a sort of a, a caution, or rather sort of draw our attention to something before we do this, because this is going to be an issue, I think, at numerous times in our discussions of the materials in Unfinished Tales. And that is the, the distinction between immersing ourselves in the stories and in the, the material in the world that Tolkien is building here, and you know, so doing that on the one hand, and on the other hand, sort of stepping back and looking at the creation of that world from the outside. Okay, both of them are very important things to do. Both of them, you know, I'm not suggesting that one of those things is is higher or greater than the other. Um, I've mentioned this before. I actually just reread this uh, uh, this essay recently. Um, so I'm going to recommend it again. I recommend it. I don't even remember what I was talking about when I 
recommended it about two years ago. Um, but I was just rereading the essay by C.S. Lewis called Meditation in a Tool Shed. Um, and he, descri- he describes being in a dark tool shed and seeing a, a, a beam of light that, co- that came down through a chink in the wall. And standing in the dark tool shed, he could look at the beam, and he could see this beam of golden light with dust motes playing in it. Um, and, of course, all the shed around looks very dark when he's looking at the sunbeam, and that's what he can see. He's examining the beam as it comes to this beam of light as it comes down through the dark tool shed. Um, however, when he shifts his position and puts his eye in the beam of light, he now can see something very different. He can now look out. Now the dark tool shed totally disappears. He's totally unaware of the tool shed and can only see that chink of blue sky and trees and the sun behind it outside the tool shed. The, he, he uses this as a metaphor for really all kinds of experiences. You know, and he says that basically in everything that we do, there's this difference between looking along the beam and looking at the beam. Um, Both are perfectly legitimate activities, but both are completely different experiences. So, for instance, uh, he gives, as, as an example, being in love. You can look at someone who is in love. You can study this phenomenon called falling in love or being in love from a psychological or sociological uh, or, you know, biochemical point of view. If you would like to do that, you know, you can study it. You can, you can look at it in that way. But you're never going to be able to have the same kind of understanding of that phenomenon as when you look along it. That is, only lovers, only people who are or have been in love, can really understand in that sense what it's like. It's, it's a, different, a completely different mode of experiencing it, looking along the beam instead of looking at the beam. I think about that essay a lot when I think about Tolkien studies, and Unfinished Tales has really been reminding me of that dichotomy quite a bit. Um, because we're going to have to switch back and forth on numerous occasions in our discussions. Um, Switch back and forth between looking at and looking along. Sometimes we're going to just be immersing ourselves in the story. For a lot of the of the rest of today's class, we're going to be, you know, looking along the beam um, when we are looking at um, Tuor and his coming to Gondolin. But there are other times when we're going to be stepping back and looking at it. That is not just immersing ourselves in that story and the world that it describes, but stopping back and thinking about what place does this have within Tolkien's, within within the development of Tolkien's own thought? What is its relationship to the earlier uh, two or stories? How does it connect with uh, the other things that Tolkien was writing and thinking about at the time that he wrote this. Um, and there are some places, as for instance in the section on Galadriel and Caliborn, when we're going to really spend most of our time looking at the beam instead of looking along it, because some of these unfinished tales are really studies in Tolkien's thought and the process of Tolkien's thought about these issues, rather than stories, you know, new extra additional stories for us to immerse ourselves in. Um, so, I, again, I just want to be uh, to, to kind of raise that as an issue because it's, it's you know, terminology that I'm going to be raising at numerous points in this uh, discussion, in our discussions here, and I just want to make sure that that vocabulary is clear in our mind, and again, I want to emphasize it is 
not a question of a higher or and a lower experience or sort of a sophisticated and a naive um, experience. And that's one of the points that C.S. Lewis makes in that essay, and I agree with him. Um, and I don't think that's true. And I think within the world of Tolkien studies, that tends to be the case. That is, you have some people who do more looking along the beam, right? Who really um, sort of take Tolkien's world of Middle-earth as a framework. And think about it and, and talk about talk within that world um, and really kind of explore and investigate that world that's looking along the beam there are others who spend who who really define themselves as as scholars and as thinkers as people who are looking at the beam right who are really thinking sort of holding themselves in a sense outside those stories and looking at them and saying I am really into what I am interested in is the progress of Tolkien's thought how his stories developed not not from inside, right? Not sort of as stories themselves, um, but sort of looking at them uh, from outside. Both perfectly legitimate, indeed important, activities. And again, I don't want you to think that I'm suggesting a kind of a hierarchy between those two things. But, um, uh, anyway, good. Okay, so, having established that terminology, I now want to look at uh, the unfinished tales as a whole for a little bit and think about their connection in Tolkien's career. Let me show you a couple things which are, let me say quite unashamedly uh, here at the beginning, gross uh, uh, generalizations. Um, th- I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a very crude uh, outline of Tolkien's uh, uh, writing career here, you know, sort of of the, the 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 progression of his career, just so that you can kind of have it in mind as we approach unfinished tales. First, the beginning of his career, Tolkien's uh, Tolkien's career really begins. At least I sort of think of the beginning of his career as the 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 Book of Lost Tales period. The Book of Lost Tales were some of you know his his first really major fictional creations. These are the original versions of the Silmarillion stories. You can read them in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1 and 2, the first two volumes of the History of Middle-earth series. T- time-wise, in, 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 in real-world chronology, we're talking about the, tw- the, the teens and the early 20s. Uh, he's developing these stories. Um, after he, he, he kind of puts aside the Lost Tales, and, and this is, I think, an interesting thing, because his first impulse in the Book of Lost Tales is to write a collection of stories, right? So he has all of these little incidents which work their way into the Silmarillion tradition. Again, it doesn't keep everything. Um, but again, it, he's not just investing himself in one single story, like the story of Baron and Luthien or the Children of Hurin. Um, he's he's giving an overview, which, which include you know, a, a sort of anthology, which includes all of these stories. Then he kind of sets that aside, and he doesn't come back to that for a while, for a number of years. In the 20s, his creative work is really dominated by poetry. We see him writing a lot of short poems and kind of occasional poems. Uh, it's from this period that we get a lot of the a lot of the poetry that makes its way and creeps its way into the Lord of the Rings, like the Man in the Moon poem and the Oliphant poem, uh, and you know a lot of those really fun things um, were written during this period, the sort of the mid to late teens and very early thirties. Um, also, at this time, he begins to take. He doesn't leave the Silmarillion stuff behind. He takes the great tales, the 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 the, the central stories that that he was most moved by. And he begins to, to, instead of, again, doing the anthology thing, he's going to dig into those and really invest in those stories as tales. But he does it 
poetically. He he starts the children of Hurin in alliterative verse. So he's going to do a full uh, alliterative version like Beowulf of the children of Hurin, but he doesn't get all that far and he stops doing that. And then he's going to do the Lay of Lathian. He's going to do the Baron and Luthien story. Um, and that he does in rhyming couplets, not in alliterative verse. And he gets much further with that one, but he doesn't finish that one either and leaves that behind. So he's developing these stories, but again, the 20s, you know, for uh, the 20s, a lot of poetry for Tolkien. Then at the end of the 20s and the early 30s, he starts to go back to not exactly the anthology model, but that kind of overview model. He starts building the model which Christopher Tolkien is going to keep for the published Silmarillion, that is that that kind of overview of the of of the epic stories of the first age that we get in the Silmarillion, he goes back to that. So in his sketch of the mythology uh, in 1926, in his first Quinta, um, which he writes in 1930, and then begins to revise. So he starts again doing that overview, not just the the fuller treatment of the great stories, but the overall history uh, of the first age. Then, in the middle of this. All of a sudden, uh, he discovers in a hole in the ground a hobbit. The hobbit comes in and leads to the Lord of the Rings, and that really kind of interrupts the Silmarillion stuff. He still is working on it um, at times, but that really, you know, the, the hobbit and the Lord of the Rings stuff becomes the focus. The hobbit, when he starts writing it, is not just sort of a, another chapter or continuation. He seemed to initially, th- he, he initially, in his very first drafts of the hobbit, connected it with the Silmarillion stuff, but then it seems to sort of move away from it. But as the story goes, and especially as he, uh, as he continues, Continues it into the sequel and starts writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, that world becomes integrated with the Silmarillion world, and now we have, you know, by the time he's finished writing the Lord of the Rings, which happens right at the end of the of the forties, it's right, it's right about nineteen fifty um, that he has finished writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, by that time, now the world looks very different. Now the Silmarillion stuff, it's still all there, but now it's the First Age. It wasn't the First Age before. It was the only age there was. Now it's the First Age. Um, the Lord of the Rings stuff is the Third Age, and we've got the Second Age, the Numenor uh, concept, which was comparatively late uh, in coming in, gets put into the Second Age. So, 1950. He's finished with uh, writing the Lord of the Rings, um, but they've not yet appeared in print. Here's my very brief and largely uh, and very crude uh, overview of Tolkien's later writing. So, this is the period we're really concerned with with unfinished tales. Almost all the unfinished tale stuff is late in Tolkien's career. It's not from the teens and 20s and 30s. Um, it's, It's all contemporary with or later than The Lord of the Rings, by and large. Um, so from 1950 to 1956, I, I've called this the Lord of the Rings publication process. So he's still working on the Lord of the Rings in the sense that he's preparing, he's reading, uh, you know, he's reading uh, 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 proofs and he's going back and forth with publishers. And there's a lot going on, um, but it's 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 written. He's done with it, and he's able to do other things, and he immediately starts doing other things, as we'll see. Um, 1956 is when The Return of the King was released in America, so that's sort of the end uh, of this publication process period. 
Then, from 1957 to 1966, he was doing a lot of revisions and explaining things to people who had questions, clarifying stuff that he wanted to develop more and clarify, um, and and expanding on a lot of his other ideas. Revisions of The Hobbit come in this period. You know, the third the third uh, uh, edition of The Hobbit comes in this period. The revision of The Lord of the Rings uh, comes in this period. Um, then from 1967 to 1973, the year of his death, he is still thinking about a lot of these things, but he's not just anymore, <clears throat> again, crude generalizations, he's no longer just kind of clarifying and explaining what he wrote in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He's now also kind of reconsidering stuff. We see him changing ideas. We see him going back and rethinking some of the stuff uh, that he wrote. So, Thinking about these very broad, um, these very broad terms, I want to show you where the unfinished tales uh, fit fit into these. So, in that first period, the Lord of the Rings publication process, we get Tuor comes from there. Tuor was written based on Christopher Tolkien's best guess in 1951. So, in other words, you, you see what happens. What happens is he submits the manuscript, you know, he takes the, you know, million-word manuscript of the Lord of the Rings, and he submits it. And then he says, okay, whew, that's done. What do I want to do for fun? Oh, I know, a really long treatment of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin. That's what I want to do. So he sits down and writes the Tuor uh, that we're going to be talking about now. Also, in the same time, he completes uh, the Narni Hin Hurin, the Children of Hurin, that we're getting uh, that we get in Unfinished Tales. That's the one with an asterisk by it. That's the qualification I keep saying. Almost all of the Unfinished Tales come from this post-Lord of the Rings period. This is the exception, because the first half of the Narn was written prior to that. It was written back in the 30s, it seems. And then he came back and finished it. Sort of finished. Anyway, continued it. Worked on the second half of it. Um, it wasn't ever really in a completed state. If you're interested uh, in learning more in detail about how that happened, I recommend to you the appendices of the Children of Horin, if you have a copy of the Children of Horin. Um, the, uh, the appendices of that that Christopher Tolkien wrote um, it sort of explain the, the uh, public, the, not the publication record, but the, the composition uh, process a little bit in uh, more detail there. So, one thing, in other words, that we see him doing almost right away, as soon as the Lord of the Rings is, is, is off to the press, he starts going back and revisiting some of these great tales. Um, the story of Baron and Luthien, the story of Turin Turambar, and the story of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin, um, these were always the great tales. These were the ones that he was primarily focused on and that he uh, he really spent most time with and really thought most about, though the Tuor story was the one of the three that got most neglected. He spent much more time writing and working on the other two. Um, but, okay, we also see him doing some other things, and these other things are things which make a little bit more sense, that is, are more directly connected to the Lord of the Rings publication process. The Quest of Erebor emerged from Appendix A. This It, it was originally going to be part of Appendix A, and he had to cut it, right? So as he's working on the appendices and including some extra material uh, in the Lord of the Rings, he ends up writing this thing, The Quest of Erebor, which he has to cut. Um, the Astari, the essay on the Astari, <laughs> Christopher Tolkien says that 
I find it hilarious, actually. This emerged as an index entry. Um, I just, I love Tolkien's, and actually kind of personally relate to, uh, Tolkien's tendency to start a really terse list and end up just sort of dilating and expanding. Like the note that uh, Christopher Tolkien includes in the beginning of Unfinished Tales, um, talking about the story of Alderion and Arendis, how at the end Tolkien was just sort of writing a brief sketch of what was supposed to happen in the rest of the story, but then he starts including some direct quotations of what people would say, and then pretty soon his terse list of like outlined events is 60 manuscript pages long. Um, so the essay on the Astari is an example, Christopher tells us, of, of how an index entry on the Astari got completely out of control, and he ended up writing all this stuff um, on, uh, on, on the wizards, on the Astari. So, so again, the Astari was written in, in, in par- as part of the process of writing the sort of ancillary material to The Lord of the Rings during that time. The Hunt for the Ring also was written right around that time. Christopher dates that to between the time when the, when, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring had been released and The Return of the King had not yet. So we're talking like winter of, of 1954. He is, tra- he is very precisely dating The Hunt for the Ring. And this does not seem to be primarily something that he was... Um, that he was re- releasing, but rather just stuff that he is working out. Again, trying to trying to sort of clarify some of the events um, that's uh, that are that are that are going on there. Um, so that's the, the, those are the works in section one in 1950 to 1956. Now, after this, in this <clears throat> clarification and expansion period. We get the essay on the Palantiri, right? This is part of his revision of The Lord of the Rings. He's thinking through this a little bit more and wanting to explain that. We also get all of the Numenorean material comes late in this period. So he's going back and he's... We can see him... I, I, I you know, I, I, This fits to me in this category because we can see him wanting to give more about the Second Age. Um, thinking about the appendices... Um, as you know, I know I did and many of you did with me back in the Return of the King class. You remember that reference in the Tale of Years in Appendix B when he says at the beginning that, that is the sort of the, you know, the editor narrator voice says that uh, although, the, although many of the dates, especially for the Second Age, are conjectural, they deserve attention, right? Um, well, it's like he thought they were a little bit too conjectural, right? He really wanted to iron those out, and so he's thinking a little bit more about, uh, you know, the dates for the line of Elros and, uh, you know, sketching out more of Numenorean history and even uh, more clearly envisioning um, this sort of glimpse of Numenorean culture, this, this one story that we get from the Isle of Numenor explaining what it might have been like to be a Numenorean, something we were, you know, he he had never done before in his other stories. Then in the third... Oh, and some of the Galadriel stuff. The Galadriel and Celeborn chapter is a mishmash of stuff that Christopher Tolkien is drawing from lots of places. Some of it is in this time frame. Some of it is later in his life. So that's kind of all over the place. Then you get some of the works which, uh, in Unfinished Tales, which are quite late, which are really in that later period when he's... um, We can see him working out some stuff that apparently he was still really thinking about, um, and in some places reconsidering stuff. The working out stuff that he was uh, really interested in, I would put the Rohirrim stuff in this category, uh, the Kyrian and Aeoral stuff, and the Battles of the Fords of Aizen, especially the latter. 
Um, the Disaster of the Gladden Fields, I put that in the category of a, of a rethinking. Um, I think that we will see in The Disaster of the Gladden Fields, Tolkien is really reimagining the Isildur story um, in ways which I think are quite different from what we get in The Lord of the Rings and the appendices and the of the Rings of Power and the Third Age essay at the end of the Silmarillion. Um, uh, and uh, and the uh, the finally the essay on the the essay and story on the Druidine the wild men of the woods the woeses um, that we meet <clears throat> in the Return of the King um, again him him sort of thinking more about them um, you know in a sense you can see Mary noticing the Pukul men right and thinking about the Pukul men and. Um, and he makes the connection. He sees the statues, and then he notices that Hanbury Khan looks exactly like the Pukul men, right? And he's like, here's one of those old images come come to life, the narrator tells us. What does that suggest? What does that mean? What's up with that? You know, who are these people, and what is their history? Um, what, what is... Why are there all those statues on the path up to Dunharrow? What, what's the story behind that? Um, we see him... Uh, filling that out somewhat uh, in the Druidine uh, story. So, okay. Um, this is uh, this is uh, my the end of my crude overview. Um, but let me... Uh, one really good question that Rob just asked that I wanted to address. D- did he neglect the Arendel story? Grievously, yes. Um, and honestly, I think that this is mostly a testimony not to the fact that he thought the Arendel story the least important, much to the contrary. I mean, in, you know, one can easily make the argument that the Arendel story was the root of the entire thing, that um, that the whole seed of Middle-earth was the Arendel story from the beginning. One could make that argument, um, looking back at, at Tolkien's writings. But... Um, yes, I think he neglected the Arendel story in terms of actually telling it. We get very little of the Arendel story. Um, he almost never wrote a f- completed version, and I think that this is because, and the, and the reason for this, I, again, I think, is not because it was not important, but rather was because of Tolkien's own impulses towards um, uh completionism. That is the way in which he would always inveterately go back and start again at the beginning. Another tendency that I sympathize with. Um, but he would always do that. This is, you know, it's one of the things, again, in the appendices to the Children of Hurin, when uh, Christopher Tolkien explains the composition of the Narn, he, uh, uh, he mentions that it was like practically a miracle. It's like completely inexplicable to him why Tolkien defied his tendency and everything else that he wrote. He wrote the first half of the Narn and, and left and cut off, stopped it in the middle of 1930, in, like, in, in 1937, I think it was. Um, stopped it like in the middle of the sentence and dropped it and didn't come back to it for 15 years. And then when he comes back to it, almost, and, and his, for the rest of his life, what Tolkien almost always did in a situation like that, just almost without exception, is he goes back and starts again at the beginning. Um, and that's why we get things at the beginning of the stories revised and revised and revised and revised, and then later material um, revised very, very much less. Um, and also a reason why so much of what Tolkien wrote didn't get finished. Um, so, 
you know, like the Lay of Lathian, for instance, the Baron and Luthien poem. He wrote quite a lot of it and then put it aside. He came back to it like ten years later. If he'd just carried on from where he left off, he might have even finished the thing, maybe, but instead he went back and heavily revised a bunch of the material he'd already written, but he didn't even get up as far as he had the first time before he stopped again. That was his normal pattern. However, for whatever reason, almost miraculously, with the Narn, he didn't do that. He just picked up where he left off and actually worked on the second half and the end of the story. Rarely did he do that. That same picture holds true on the macroscopic level with the whole Silmarillion tradition. So the stories in the beginning part of the Silmarillion tradition got rethought and reworked many, many times. The stuff at the end, not so much. And that's one of the reasons why with the Tuor story. Tuor is right before Eärendil, so it's in a it's in better shape than the Eärendil story is, um, as far as the number of times Tolkien did a complete version. But um, but it's still much worse off than Baron and Luthien or the Narn. Um, this text in Unfinished Tales, this 1951 text of uh, Tuor and uh, the coming to Gondolin, which gets stopped so comparatively early uh, in the course of the whole story, is there's only one other completed text. Again, if we don't count the, the sort of the synopsis that he wrote, which is included in the published Silmarillion, that was, you know, based on the synopsis that Tolkien wrote for the Quenta when he was in that uh, sort of overview mode. So he, he summarized the Tuor story and the story of the fall of Gondolin. Um, but the only two texts we have are this and the Unfinished Tales. Uh, or no, this, sorry, this and the Book of Lost Tales, way back. Uh, f- and, and the fall of Gondolin the story of the fall of Gondolin from uh, from Unfinished Tales was, Tolkien said, the first story he wrote. So, you know, it, he, he wrote a story of Tuor and the fall of Gondolin. The very first thing, during World War I, he writes the fall of Gondolin and doesn't come back to it to rewrite it until 1951, where he gets this far and never comes back to it again. Um... So and and again and I think Rob that it's because it's because it's at the end he 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 was like constitutionally incapable of focusing on the end first saying you know I really need to do justice to Tuor and Gondolin before I go back and you know look at the making of the sun and moon again or the fate of the trees uh, uh, again I really gotta I really gotta do justice to Gondolin he couldn't do that <laughs> I think uh, and just ended up going back and starting from the beginning again. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, this is my overview. I hope this helps to give a little bit of a picture of the different kinds of texts that we're going to be looking at and the different places they, uh, they fall into. Um, you'll see, I hope also why I wanted to bring up that whole issue of looking at versus looking along. You can see that these different texts are going to invite us to look at them in very different ways. And, to some extent, we're going to want to examine, I think, these texts in both ways, um, each of them. Uh, though, again, they will be uh, focused in very different ways. But let us go on and talk about Tuor, actually. Um, let's see. Actually, wait. Hang on a second. Roy has a, a really good um, 
a really good question that I want to address first. Uh, Roy says, is the metafictional frame for this narrative the same as in the Silmarillion, as in, is it an elvish version? There isn't really a metafictional... Oh, you mean for uh, for this narrative, meaning the Tuor narrative? Um, that's uncertain to me, actually. I don't know what the metafictional frame of that story was going to be. Um, I mean, keep in mind, with all of the Silmarillion material from the beginning, that is, from the Book of Lost Tales onward, on the one hand, yes, it was an elvish frame in the sense that these are elvish stories and the source of these um, are elvish legends. However, from the beginning, they are always mediated through human hearers and retellers. So again, the, the whole conceit of the Book of Lost Tales is that you have a human being, Ariel, originally, who finds himself in Elvenholm, um, the island of Elvenholm, and he, he, he hears these stories told to him by elves, and he's going to bring, those, bring them back and transmit them uh, to humans back in the world. Um, in, of course, Anglo-Saxon. So he's going to do a complete translation of these into his own native language, Anglo-Saxon, um, and that's going to be awesome. And that's why there are some of these stories and portions of the stories that exist in Anglo-Saxon translation, which is a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, so anyway, so that, that concept of elvish stories that, have, that, have, that are being mediated through mortals... Um, is part of the concept from the beginning. So even thinking about the Silmarillion as an elvish text, I think that that's right, and I think that often that gives us uh, an interesting insight into some elements of the story and the way that, that the stories and the way that they're told. We do also have to remember that part of that can, that frame as well is that it's a mortal who is transmitting to us stories received from the elf, so it's not pure elvish that we're getting. Um, in the Silmarillion we're getting Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, right? Again, that's the, you know, in the in the introduction to, that's not explicitly stated in the Silmarillion. Um, in the introduction to volume one of the Book of Lost Tales, Christopher Tolkien says he thinks that that was a mistake, that he feels really confident that that was in fact what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien intended, that, um, that basically what we would be getting in the Silmarillion would be... Uh, Bilbo's translations handed down to us. Um, but he, Christopher, says, that, I'm paraphrasing here, Christopher does not use this language, but that basically Christopher wimped out. Tolkien never actually wrote that. You know, he didn't write a frame which alluded to these uh, stories as coming from Bilbo's translation. So when it push came to shove, Christopher Tolkien couldn't get himself to assert that since he didn't have his dad's explicit written authority for that, and he didn't want to do that off his own bat. Um, so he kind of wimped out and didn't, and left Bilbo out of it. In the preface, in the introduction, as I say, to the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, he admits that he thinks that that, that was a mistake, and that he should have had the Bilbo frame um, on, the, on the Silmarillion from the beginning. But anyway... Um, what are we getting, therefore, in the... Tour and the coming to Gondolin story. Um, and again, I don't know. I, I, to some extent, I, 
you one would think that it has to be elvish i mean by definition almost any story that comes down from the first age has to be elvish uh in origin almost certainly has to be it's hard to imagine a human uh uh sort of genealogy uh textual genealogy of this story which would be very improbable it theoretically could, uh, you know, right of the followers of, you know, Elros could have taken it with him to Numenor, you know, a, a version of this story with him to Numenor, and it'd be handed down and then survive the the, the, the flooding of Numenor and uh, made it to Middle-earth, but that's really kind of unlikely. Um, however, that's not to say that the story might not be more than one remove away uh, from that, we just really don't know what the frame is. But right, it's a really interesting question to be thinking about, um, and uh, and I'm not really I'm not really sure about that. Uh, uh, Jordan Brown is teasing me. He says, "Topic: Christopher Tolkien suing me for def- for for <laughs> defamation of character." Man, I'm just paraphrasing him. I wouldn't have said it if he didn't say it uh, in the in the in the preface to the book to the to the book of Lost Tales. As I said, not his words exactly, but that's totally what he was getting at. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. John points out that the story seems to be told from Tuor's point of view. Exactly, John. That's one of the reasons that I pause about it because there are. Um, some of these stories, even in the Silmarillion, the Tours, the the Turin story, rather Turin Turinbar story, being I think the biggest example, which is really much closer to human experience. It's not just that the main character of it is a human, um, and that his interactions with elves are much lesser and much less prominent. That is, of course, Baron is another very prominent human character, but the story of Baron and Luthien is still more fundamentally elvish in its interests and focus than the Turin Turinbar story is. Although elves come into that. That story very significantly. That's really a story about, about humans, much more thoroughly uh, than most of the stories that we get in the Silmarillion. The Tuor story, uh, John, I agree, as we get it here um, in this text, is also a much more human story in that way. So what does that mean? Again, does this mean that we are getting... Um, you know, an elvish version which relates to the, uh, which is is sort of investing in Tuor's point of view more. But again, it, but it's an elvish remembrance of the story of Tuor and them attempting to understand and make sense of this human perspective. Are we getting this story a couple versions removed? That is, we could have an elvish story of Tuor that has survived um, and that it's been retold. Based upon that story, um, you know, say some 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 elvish poetic version of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin, and the story that we're getting actually comes from a human uh, a human based prose retelling of that. That's the kind of frame thing I can easily imagine Tolkien doing. But again, we get no. I think we get very few direct cues about that from the from the context of the story itself. There's very little I think we have to go on in trying to guess what the actual frame is. Um, but it's a really but it's a really good question. Kevin asks uh, perfect setup to what I wanted to talk about next. So thank you, Kevin. Uh, had Tolkien finished Tour? Did he have a form in which he planned to publish it? We don't know. Um, but if we sort of pause and look at it. I think we can notice some important things. First, it is really long, right? It is really long and really detailed. You think about the amount, you know, go back and look at the Silmarillion and look at the percentage of Tuor's story that we have covered already at this point. Um, 
and uh, and then think about how many pages he's already written. This is on track to be a novel-length treatment of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin. Um, and that would have been awesome, even if you go back and read the Unfinished Tales. So again, that Unfinished Tales version, still the only finished version of the Fall of Gondolin ever. The first thing Tolkien ever wrote was the only uh, completed version of the Fall of Gondolin. Um, you go back and you read that one. It, this treatment is much deeper and in much greater detail than what we got in Unfinished Tales. Uh, the, the, the Unfinished Tales version of the story tells the time from, you know, Tuor's beginning until he comes through the Gate of Gondolin in a fraction of the amount of the space that he takes to tell that story here. Um, this is... Uh, uh, I think that there's, there's... This was certainly going to be... Um, uh, sorry... I think I misspoke myself. Talking about the book of lost tales and unfinished tales, um, when I'm directly comparing those two, I'm likely to misspeak a lot and be confusing. I apologize if I have said or say the wrong things there. Um, But uh, the lost tales version... Um, is the only completed version, the one that he wrote way back in like 1915, 1917. And then, uh, but again, so if you look at that version compared to the Unfinished Tales version that we are reading and talking about tonight, um, that the, 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 the amount of expansion he's already been doing has been quite a lot. One fun uh, sort of project for uh, thinking about Tour. Where do you think the story would end? If he had finished it. Where was the story headed, do you think? What was the final chapter going to be about? Any guesses? Where does the story seem like it's heading? Based on what he's been saying, the kinds of themes and ideas he's been raising? Any ideas? Possible stopping places could be I mean, maybe it would just be about his coming to Gondolin, conceivably, right? Maybe we won't even get the fall of Gondolin. Seems unlikely. Probably get the fall of Gondolin. Maybe we'll get the fall of Gondolin all the way through Arendel's story. That's conceivable. That would be even longer, right? Um, We could end the last chapter with Tuor leading the uh, the exiles from Gondolin over the mountains, right? You know, maybe the fall of Glorfindel and the Balrog is the final chapter. Um, that's uh, one possibility. Um, I, uh, my own vote, and again, I'm just guessing, no idea. Um, but my vote would be for. Let's see. I agree with um, Arthur and Mandel and Yana and Brianna um, who are all saying the fate of Tuor that is when Tuor and Idril sail out and are never seen again Um, that would be my own vote and the reason I say that is that I think especially of the early um, the emphasis in the early part of Tuor's story 
on uh, him and ships and his longing for the sea, I think that that setting, that scene, that sounds like, it feels like it's setting up um, with the beginning of the story being this kind of awakening in Tour, and not only um, his contact with Olmo and his sort of taking on the literally the mantle of, of, of the messenger of Olmo. That's obviously a major focus in this story, but that whole you know time of discovery leading up to that um coming up to the that the that really beautiful mythic moment of Tuor looking out upon the sea um when he you know crests the rise and he's on the top of a cliff and sees the whole sea, you know the the sea spread out beneath him the first of all mortal men to look upon the sea um i think that that is really planting a seed which then we get away from right we we, we you know We've got other business to do. We've got to go to Gondolin and deliver Olmo's message, and there are many other things that need to happen. Um, but in the end, I think the story sounds like it's going to come back to the sea. That would be my guess. Now, I have no idea, but that would be my guess uh, as to where the story would end. But uh, let's um, let's try to sort of look at Olmo and what he's doing, um, because uh, this is a really interesting treatment of one of the Valar. So I want to jump ahead to Olmo's job description. Uh, and this is, by the way, where I am going to be talking about the theme that I'm jokingly alluding to in the title of this class of Tour and the Cracks of Doom. Uh, and uh, I, I want to give full credit to Tom Hillman, uh, who uh, who provided that uh, that pun <coughs> in an email that he sent me earlier this week. I love the pun with the cracks of doom based upon this speech here that uh, um, it doesn't actually have anything to do with Mount Doom other than the fact that it has a lot to do with doom. Anyway, here here's Olmo. Then I will set words in thy mouth to say unto Turgon, said Olmo, but first I will teach thee, and some things thou shalt hear which no man else hath heard, nay, not even the mighty among the Eldar. And Olmo spoke to Tuor of Valinor and its darkening, and the exile of the Noldor, and the doom of Mandos, and the hiding of the blessed realm. But behold, said he, in the armor of fate, as the children of earth name it, there is ever a rift, and in the walls of doom a breach, until the full-making, which ye call the end. So it shall be while I endure, a secret voice that gainsayeth, and a light where darkness was decreed. Therefore, Though in the days of this darkness I seem to oppose the will of my brethren, the lords of the West, that is my part among them, to which I was appointed ere the making of the world. Yet doom is strong, and the shadow of the enemy lengthens, and I am diminished, until in Middle-earth I am become now no more than a secret whisper. The waters that run westward wither, and their springs are poisoned, and my power withdraws from the land. For elves and men grow blind and deaf to me because of the might of Melkor. And now the curse of Mandos hastens to its fulfillment, and all the works of the Noldor shall perish, and every hope which they build shall crumble. The last hope alone is left, the hope that they have not looked for and have not prepared. And that hope lieth in thee, for so I have chosen. Okay. All right. Um, this is Tuor's job description. 
or not the one we're not we're not yet to tours job description we're still at Olmo's job description right him just describing what he himself does um i want to kind of break this passage into two parts i want to think about what he says uh to tour and what you know sort of what he's telling tour about the future but i want to talk about that second first i want to talk about the history lesson that he gives tour and what he says about himself because that is in some ways really kind of difficult to understand um let me do a part of that again. So he gives he gives his little synopsis. He's he gives him a synopsis of the history of the first stage to this part to this point. This is a big deal because this is the first time that this has happened to a mortal man. What's been going on is elvish business, and he's heard about many of these things, of course. Though remember, in the Silmarillion we get all these references to Things that people don't really tell other people about, right? So the Curse of Mandos, people don't exactly talk about that a whole lot. That's not a favorite topic of conversation among the Noldor. So, you know, Tuor has grown up among elves, and he knows them, but that doesn't mean he knows all this stuff. You know, we can't assume that he has the full history at his fingertips here, nor have any of the mortal men really gotten that... um, history fully at their fingertips. So the, 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 the true story here is being revealed to Tuor by Olmo. That, in its way, is already, well, if not actively deviant, unusual at least, right? But then after his history lesson, looking again at what he says, Behold, but behold, said he, in the armor of fate, as the children of Earth name it, there is ever a rift, and in the walls of doom a breach, until the full making which ye call the end. Okay, let's just kind of unpack that. What on earth is he talking about here? So, he's talking about fate or doom, and he seems to be using those two words synonymously. When he says, in the armor of fate there is ever a rift, and uh, uh, and in the walls of doom a breach. I take those two things as being synonymous, that he's, he's saying the same thing, just in two different ways. So he's using the word doom here in the sense of the synonym of fate. Um, And that's what he means by, as the children of Earth name it. The children of Earth name, call this thing fate. That is this plan for what should be. But, he says, in doom, in fate, there's a weak spot. He uses two metaphors. uh, Armor, and the and, and and the wall, a rift in the armor and a breach in the walls. Both of these metaphors are military metaphors, and they are offensive military metaphors. That is, he is on the offensive and face. So this is not that doom can creep in through a breach or through a rift in the armor, but rather in the armor of fate itself there is a breach. There is like a uh, you know, a, a a a a gap in the hollow of the left breast. Right there's a missing scale uh, in the armor of fate on its underside, um, which, with the assistance uh, of thrushes, you can possibly find if you're a good enough archer. That is almost job is to shoot into the rift in the armor of fate. He says, um, so. And he says, this is always true. 
in the armor of fate, there is ever a rip. It is always true that although it looks like fate is ironclad, although it looks like doom is impregnable, nothing can change fate. That that fate which is decreed is definitely going to happen, and there's nothing we can do about it. There's always a rift. There's always a breach. Um, well, almost always, until the end, right? When you know there will come a time when history is over. And at that point, doom will be done, right? There's, there's not going to be any getting around things at that point. But notice he gives a synonym, a synonym there as well. He calls what humans call, what the children of Earth call the full making, he calls the, or, or call the end, he calls the full making, right? Um, and that's a really, uh, a really important thing. You, humans, and uh, presumably elves as well would be included in that. You call this the end. The end of time. The end of Arda. The end of this creation. As if it were simply when things were going to stop. Right? Olmo thinks of that moment as the full making. Right? When the story is complete. When the song has uh, not just doesn't just break off, but when it comes to its fulfillment. Um, at that point, the story, you know, doom, fate, will be complete. But until then, there's a breach. Okay. And then he recognizes... Um, th- then then he, he says, this is my job, right? So it shall be while I endure. So it shall be while I endure. Well, so, Omo, hang on a second. Why is there a rift in the armor of fate? Why is there a breach in the walls of doom? Because he puts it there, he says. He is the breacher of the walls of doom. The, re- the, 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 the render of the armor of fate. That's his job. He's the one who... He doesn't shoot uh, uh, dragons in the hollow of the left breast. He just sees that their scale gets loose. Right? He makes the loose scale. That's his job. Right? Um... So it shall be while, while I endure a secret voice that gainsayeth, and a light where darkness was decreed. Almost a rebel, he says. He is not going to... Um, he is not going to submit to... You know, where darkness is decreed, he's going to be a light. He is a, he is a, a, a secret voice that gainsayeth. When all of the voices of fate seem to be saying one thing, he alone is over there saying, actually, no. No, I, I, I don't agree. I will not submit to that doom, to that fate. That's why he is... Uh, that's why he is... Uh, yes, Scott, you're right. He is the thrush. He is the thrush, yeah, sort of sort of the thrush. Um, the thrush didn't make the empty spot. Uh, you know, the, 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 if the thrush had also loosened the scale of, of Smaug's armor, then, uh, then we would have it. But um, Anyway. Uh, any, anyhow, okay. he, is, he is the voice that gainsayeth. Um, therefore, though in the days of this darkness... So now he's applying this general premise, the way that he has just described himself. This is why he is the one who still is connected with Middle-earth. The rest of the Valar are over there in Valinor. Not, it seems, 
at least it seems to the people in Middle Earth, paying all that much attention to the people in Middle Earth. Um, uh, here's Olmo still paying attention and still working to help the Noldor when they've been exiled and banished by the rest of the Valar. Um, not, he seems to almost boast, with their permission, necessarily. Um, uh, I should, as Timothy is reminding me, uh, define the curse of Mandos, the doom and the curse of Mandos. Um, and I don't want to tell the entire story, but it alludes to the exile of the Noldor. Um, when the Noldor chose to rebel against the Valar and leave uh, Valinor and come back to Middle-earth um, because Morgoth, the enemy, Sauron's old boss, had taken the Silmarils, the bright jewels of Feanor, the leader of the Noldor. Um, when the Noldor decided to come back uh, and uh, did some very unscrupulous things along the way, such as murdering their kin and uh, uh, and stealing the ships of the Teleri, uh, and then Feanor betraying his brothers, and things were getting pretty ugly. Um, the uh, the Mandos, the the Valar in charge of Doom, um, the and the the one of the Valar who. Uh, based upon this description, you would expect Olmo most to annoy um, <laughs> would be Mandos. He's the one who's always decreeing dooms. Um, if uh, if there's somebody that uh, if there's somebody in particular that Olmo is gainsaying, you'd think it would be Mandos. Um, so ha- has decreed the curse of the Valar upon the Noldor in general, in the House of Feanor in particular, um, and uh, that the House of Feanor will be dispossessed, uh, and that the treachery, uh, you know, the, the, the treason and backstabbing that the Noldor were guilty of in departing from Valinor um, is going to be visited back upon them, and so they're going to be victims of treachery, and everything that they set themselves to is going to come to nothing, and it's going to be kind of awful. Um, so, um, anyway, so that's, um, um, that's, that's the curse of Mandos. That's, that is part, anyway, of what almost seems to re- be referring to as the doom that he is gainsaying, the the doom into which into whose walls he has made a breach. Um, Though in the days of this darkness I seem to oppose the will of my brethren, the lords of the West, that is my part among them, to which I was appointed ere the making of the world. Um, so he's kind of a rebel, but he that's his job he says, is to be a rebel. This is the role that he has in the great music. He's not working against fate. He's not working against providence. He's not working against the plan of Iluvatar, of God who designed the whole thing, as we read back in the Ainuindale. Rather, he is his instrument. Um, But it works in this kind of counterintuitive way. Um... Yet doom is strong, he says, and the shadow of the, em- of the enemy lengthens. Right and now he's only a secret whisper. This is all a setup for him s- saying to Tuor, so this is what I'm going to do. You are going to be my instrument. The last hope alone is left, the hope they have not looked for and have not prepared, and that hope lieth in thee, for so I have chosen. Okay. Um, we're not going to have much time to look at the next passage. I don't want to, we're not going to be able to certainly to do it justice, but I couldn't not talk about it. And in connection with this um, sort of 
revelation that Olmo gives of himself. And that is when he blows the blast on his horn, which in the Silmarillion is called the Ulumuri. I love the name. Uh, and thereupon Olmo lifted up a mighty horn and blew upon it a single great note, to which the roaring of the storm was but a wind flaw upon a lake. And as he heard that note and was encompassed by it and filled with it, it seemed to Tuor that the coasts of Middle-earth vanished, and he surveyed all the waters of the world in a great vision, from the veins of the lands to the mouths of the rivers and from the strands and estuaries out into the deep. The great sea he saw, through its unquiet regions, teeming with strange forms, even to its lightless depths, in which amid the everlasting darkness there echoed voices terrible to mortal ears. Its measureless plains he surveyed, with the swift sight of the Valar, lying windless under the eye of Anar, or glittering under the horned moon, Anar is the sun, of course, or lifted in hills of wrath that broke upon the shadowy isles, until remote upon the edge of sight and beyond the count of leagues he glimpsed a mountain, rising beyond his mind's reach into a shining cloud, and at its feet a long surf glimmering. And even as he strained to hear the sound of those far waves, and to see clearer that distant light, the note ended, and he stood beneath the thunder of the storm, and lightning, many branched, rent asunder the heavens above him. And Olmo was gone, and the sea was in tumult, and as the wild waves of Asse rode against the walls of Neverest. Okay. Um, there's a lot in this passage. The very brief thing that I want to say about it, and could spend a lot more time talking about it, I think. But this is his final note. This is the end of his conversation with Tuor, is to blow the blast on his horn, and through that note, through the music of his horn, to give this vision to Tuor. What is this vision? What are we getting? How would you describe that? Um... Uh, what would you say, if you had to sort of summarize, if somebody asked you, like I am now asking you, what is the vision that Tuor is given by Omo through the horn here? What would you say? It's a vision of Arda, as Mandel says. Yes, it is. Uh, Mandel asks, why is that important? Yeah, yeah, it's a God's eye view of the world, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Mike, I agree. Mike says, it's what Olmo sees. Um, yes. Um, uh, Henry's asking, is this the mountain where Manway lives? Yes, that is Teniquitil, I believe, that he is seeing there. Um, Jan says, we're, we're getting sort of a journey across the sea to Valinor. Um, yes, though again, it's, as Mendel says, a sort of a God's eye view, right? It's not um, a journey across the sea like Arendel is going to make right. We're not down at sea at at sea level at ship level. We're seeing the whole sea, and not just from above, right? We're seeing it from above, from within. That description of the the rivers flowing like veins in the earth is almost a view from below, right? Or feels that way. Um, we're seeing the entirety of the sea, and what the sea is doing is connecting both. Olmo um, is connected to the shores of Fairy on the one side. You know, his power goes from the shores of Fairy, from the shores of Valinor on the one side, to Middle-earth on the other side. Um, 
and you know his song and his music and his power which extends through all of the waters of the earth joins these things the sea is the path to the west is the path to valinor is the path to fairy and um he uh he gives this vision this in, this sort of insight to tuor here um yeah, Andrew says uh, it also shows that fairy is everywhere if you can just see it. Yeah, it certainly does invite uh, Tuor and us to look at things like streams and rivers differently. Um, there's a kind of continuity, right, that established by Omo, by the sea. When you see it from the point of... When you see the sea, not just as the obstacle, you know, you've got Middle-earth here, and you've got Valinor way over there, and there's the sea in the middle, right, with the sea being the barrier that's so hard to cross between here and there... When you cease to see the sea as the barrier, and you see the sea itself as the medium, right? Um, the sea itself is the focal point of the vision. The sea and all of the waters. You can see that, uh, um, you know, they're 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 not actually far. They're both they're both on on the same shores, right? They are. It is everywhere. They are all they are all connected. Sarah says this is what. A. Rendell will be seeing in the future. I like that. Yes, to some extent. Um, Nathan asks, is Olmo giving him his sight like how Morgoth gives Hurin the curse to see through Morgoth's eyes? Awesome question, Nathan. Hang on to that until next week uh, when we look at the the passage with Hurin and Morgoth at the beginning of the Narn. Um, It will be very interesting to remember this passage when we look at that. I don't want to talk about it yet because we haven't read it yet, but but I I would like to come back to that. yeah, good. Roy asks, is he giving him a glimpse or an echo of the music? Yes. Well, that seems to be one of the points, is that the music itself is is echoed in uh, in in the music of the waters itself, and, and that's why it's the music, his music on his horn that he's playing for Tuor to give him this. Um, you remember in the Ainulindale, the vision that was given to the uh, to the Ainur, they have their song, right, and then they're they're given a vision of the history of Arda um, before they enter into time themselves. Um, this is almost like that vision um, that he's sort of showing him. Here's what here's what the music looks like. Here is the big picture in this sense. Um, so anyway, so this is why I couldn't. Talk about the previous passage, you know, the uh, the the rent in the armor of fate passage, without talking about, um, without also giving this passage because I think it really corresponds with it. Um, the other thing I would point out, and this is something that this story does a lot of, I think that story that Tolkien's use of imagery in this story, the way that he ties stuff together, um, is really fascinating. I would have loved to see. Um, I, I really fell in love with this version of the Tuor story um, in this reading of it. You know, often I say when I'm talking about Tolkien, you know, like, oh, this time through reading it, I saw so much I didn't see before. That was certainly true. With the Tuor story this time, even more, um, I'd never really liked this story very much. Um, in fact, I will confess many of the times, especially early on uh, in my Tolkien reading career when I read Unfinished Tales, I skipped the First Age stuff uh, and would just go, because what I mostly wanted was the Lord of the Rings background materials. I was all about the hunt for the ring and I really loved the quest of Erebor, but I was not so interested in the early stuff. 
but I think that the the way that Tolkien is telling this story is really brilliant. Um, and uh, and again, sort of the more I the more I think about it, the more the more the more really amazing it looks. There are so many places where he has embedded within the descriptions of other things that he talks about in this story, um, images which really pick up on these ideas. You think about that idea of the breach, um, the breach in the walls of doom, right? And then go to the description of the hidden way into Gondolin. Remember the whole, you've got that path, that uh, ravine that they go through, which is like an axe cut in the cliffs, right? So you've got the, the the encircling mountains, and there's this breach in the encircling mountains that the path to Gondolin goes through. Um, he is he is he is right there, going through the rift in the armor of fate, uh, and going in. I think it's 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 really it's really cool. Henry asks, "What if any was the significance of the seven swans' feathers?" I don't know, but you know what I think? I think we would have known. Um, I. I that passage says all over to me that's going to be important later on. There's going to be like those those swan feathers. We don't even we don't know exactly what he does with the swan feathers, but I know they're going to be important later. Something's going to happen with those with those. As April's pointing out, we get the pattern right: the seven names of Gondolin, the seven swans, the seven gates. We get all these sevens. Um, again, if you go back to the book of Lost Tales, I think I said it correctly this time, and you read the old Gondolin story. He spends so much time talking about the heraldry of the great houses and uh, how Tuor initially takes the swan as his emblem um, uh, and as the emblem of his house. So, you know, I'm expecting... um, I'm expecting Henry that the swan feathers would have made it into uh, would have made it into Gondolin and been made into something. I don't know, but uh, but I do think that. uh, they would have been important later on if we'd if we'd get into them. Sarah's theory is that he gives the swan feathers to Tom Bombadil, um, and I love that idea, uh, Sarah. I think that's very funny. I think uh, uh, I will smile the next time I uh, uh, see the feather in Tom Bombadil's hat. Thinking about that. Um, anyway. Um, yes, Jeff says. You know, Gondolin also was Olmo's idea, uh, and it's just sadly ironic that in the end, uh, you know, Turgon won't listen to Olmo. Yeah, it almost seems like that, you know, here's Tuor passing through the breach in the Walls of Doom, um, and yet the hope that he's supposed to bring gets turned down. So, wow, he was a failure, I guess. Wasn't he? Eh, well, again, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but, um, uh but it's 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 definitely um but but again I don't think that that's the whole story. We'll come back to that here uh in a minute. Let's look at Tour. Um here's Tour making up his mind what he's going to do. Now Tour knew that though fortune still favored him, yet in the end the days of an outlaw are numbered and ever are and are ever few and without hope. Nor was he willing to live thus forever a wild man in the houseless hills, and his heart urged him ever to do great deeds. Another thing that I love about the Tuor story here, this version of the Tuor story, there are these ideas and uh, and words which keep bubbling up, which we see again and again, um, uh, which I you know are things which just kind of 
you know, blink at me as we're reading. Hope is a big one in this uh, in this story. This this was going to be a big hope story. Um, this story, one of the reasons that I really love this story, reading it through this time, is to sort of see, you know, imagining a no- this was going to be a novel length version of a story of doom and hope, right? Two of the themes in the Lord of the Rings that are really cool that he's thought about so much in the Lord of the Rings and done a lot with. Remember, he's just handed in the manuscript, right? And he's like, ah, now what shall I do? I know, Tuor. So he turns from the Lord of the Rings and he sits down to write this Tuor story. And we get this story, which is about doom and choice. You know, if, 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 if you're hearing echoes of Frodo and his choice to take the ring, you should be hearing echoes. They're, I think they're clearly there. Um, and if you're thinking about, you know, Frodo losing hope and, and Sam and hope and the star and, you know, all this stuff, we talked about that in, in the Return of the Kings class, you should be. It's, it's, it's all there. This, this story is very much interested um, in those ideas. Um, but anyway, okay, sorry. And are ever few and without hope. Nor was he willing to live thus forever, a wild man in the houseless hills, and his heart urged him ever to, to great deeds. Herein, it is said, the power of Ulma was shown. For he gathered tidings of all that passed in Beleriand, and every stream that flowed from Middle-earth to the great sea was to him a messenger, both to and fro, and he remained also in friendship, as of old, with Círdan and the shipwrights at the mouths of Sirion. Note this passage is earlier than the confrontation with Ulmo, of course, so when we're hearing this about um, uh, Ulmo gathering tidings and everything, that's sort of setting up Ulmo's own description of this later on. And at this time, most of all, Ulmo gave heed to the fates of the house of Hador, for in his deep counsels he purposed that they should play a great part in his designs for the succor of the exiles, that is, the Noldor. And he knew well of the plight of Tuor, for Anna, for, 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 sorry, for Anil and his, and many of his folk had indeed escaped from Dor Loman and come at last to Círdan in the far south. Thus it came to pass that on a day in the beginning of the year, twenty and three since the near knife, Tuor sat by a spring that trickled forth near to the door of the cave where he dwelt, and looked out westward towards the cloudy sunset. Then suddenly it came into his heart that he would wait no longer, but would arise and go. I will, now, I will leave now the grey land of my kin that are no more, he cried, and I will go in search of my doom. But whither shall I turn? Long have I sought the gate, and found it not." Another one of those examples. Long have I sought the gate and found it not. That sentence resonates beyond what he means by it, right? It's because you're seeking the wrong gate, right? Yeah, you're going to find a gate. In fact, you don't know that you're seeking a gate yet, uh, but uh, but you're, gonna, you're seeking the one gate and you're going to find the other gate. Um, that kind of parallelism, I think, uh, you know, happens a lot uh, in this uh, in this story. But now think about Tour and what's just happened with Tour. Tour comes to a decision, right? He makes up his mind. Okay, I'm not just going to stay forever a solitary wild man. I want to go and I want to. I want to do something. I want to make something of my life. So I'm going to go. Was that his idea? Um, that was his doom, right? He's going to go in search of my doom. He says, "I'm going to go in search of my fate." He is going out to seek his fortune. But this wasn't entirely his idea, 
right? Um, again, notice the transitions that we get. We get these two clear cues in this passage. His heart urged him ever to great deeds, we're told at the beginning. Herein, it is said, the power of Olmo was shown. So his heart is urging him to great deeds because Olmo is urging his heart to great deeds, right? That idea is put in his heart by Olmo. And in case we missed that, later on, we're t- then suddenly it came into his heart that he would wait no longer. All of a sudden, I just have this impulse to go. I think I'm going to leave, right? That seems like a good idea. So, is Tours will not free? Is he not making his own choices? Uh, is he? Not, I will go in search of my doom? He's not just submitting to his doom, right? I will go, because that is my doom. That's not what he's saying. He believes he's choosing. He believes he has made a decision, and that he is walking under his own power uh, to... He's, he's going under his own power to seek his doom. And yet, at the same time... Uh, and yet, and yet, at the same time, Olmo is planting these ideas in his mind. Right? We see both of these things happening at once. Um, look at what happens when he gets to Vinyamar. As he stood before the great chair in the gloom and saw that it was hewn of a single stone and written with strange signs, the sinking sun drew level with a high window under the westward gable, and a shaft of light smote the wall before him and glittered as it were upon burnished metal. Then Tuor, marveling, saw that on the wall behind the throne were hung a shield and a great hauberk, and a helm and a long sword in a sheath. Um, it, by the way, it may or may not be Durin's day. I'm not sure. Um... But anyway, sorry, I'll stop making Hobbit references now. Um, uh, Helm and a a long sword in a sheath. Okay, the hauberk shone as it were wrought of silver untarnished, and the sunbeam gilded it with sparks of gold. But the shield was of a shape strange to Tuor's eyes, for it was long and tapering, and its field was blue, in the midst of which was wrought an emblem of a white swan's wing. Then Tuor spoke, and his voice rang as a challenge in the roof. By this token I will take these arms unto myself, and upon myself whatsoever doom they bear. And he lifted down the shield, and found it light and wieldy beyond his guess, for it was wrought, it seemed, of wood, but overlaid by the craft of elven smiths with plates of metal, strong yet thin as foil, whereby it had been preserved from worm and weather. And he is going to need preservation from both weather and worms before long. Another one of those moments where I, we get the sort of the word play, um, the, the sort of the the word play and, and and dramatic irony and foreshadowing in this story. Of course, he is going to be um, having hardships from weather both at the beginning and at the end of this story, both in his trip to Gondolin that's going to actually happen within the story that we have here, and also at the end of the story, when he and the exiles have fled from Gondolin and they're crossing the mountains and wandering at the end, um, we are going to, again, if we can trust uh, anything of the model uh, of the Book of Lost Tales version, we're going to have some hardships from weather coming in at the end there as well, and also, of course, worms. Um, Here it's more mundane worms uh, that we are talking the kind of worms that would eat wood or leather, but now of course, later on, worms uh, 
as in dragons, because dragons play a very significant role in the fall of Gondolin. So having a shield which would preserve him from worms and weather will in fact be quite useful. But anyway, but that's not what I wanted to talk about here. What I wanted to talk about is his choice. You see, again, you see the el- we see the elements of what's of what's happening, right? Um, he's making another choice, right? By this token, I will take these arms unto myself, and upon myself whatsoever doom they bear. <clears throat> Tuor chooses his fate. He chooses to embrace his fate. He is not. That you know, is he being manipulated? Yes, he's being manipulated. He has been called to this place by Olmo, um, who prepared for this long in advance. We know that uh, you know. We know from the Silmarillion tradition, this armor that's up on the wall was placed there for Tuor <clears throat> when Turgon left. This was Turgon's old city. He and his people left it when they when they moved to Gondolin. You know they were upgrading uh, 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 their 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 location. Um, so when they left Vinyamar, almost said, "There's going to come a time when I'm going to send a messenger to you, and here's how you'll know my messenger when he arrives. I want you to make some armor, and I want you to hang it right here in the hall." And he gives him like tours measurements. Okay, he sees he says this is exactly because in Tolkien's world. Unlike, uh, say, in the world of Sir Thomas Mallory, where one knight can wear the armor of any other knight, they're like swapping armor all the time, <clears throat> and armor is clearly comes in like a one size fits all uh, 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 basis, you know, in uh, in many medieval <laughs> Arthurian stories. Um, but that's 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 not true here. This is tailored to Tuor, right? Um, and so he takes this armor, and it fits him perfectly. So you can say, looking at it from that point of view. Tuor doesn't have a choice, right? Olmo knew he was going to come. Olmo has prepared for his coming. Olmo has brought him here, right? So, you know, he says, I'll take upon myself the doom. Man, you're already in the middle of that doom. In fact, your coming here is fulfilling this doom that's been foretold a long time ago, right? Doom is already overtaking you here, Tuor, right? Well, no, not. That's not the only story here. Tuor is choosing it. You can see the intimacy with which Tolkien combines these ideas, the ideas of Tuor's choice, and of the actions of fate, and of his doom. Um, Notice, he chooses, right? What's the premise of his choice? Why does he choose? By this token, that is, him standing there in the sunlight coming in and shining full upon this armor, I'm going to take that as a sign. Uh, he sounds a lot, remember in the Two Towers class and the Return of the King class, sounds a lot like Aragorn, sounds a lot even like Frodo at times, right? I shall take this jewel that is set here as a sign, says Aragorn way back in the Fellowship of the Ring when he decides to cross the bridge. Um, this is the way that a lot of people in Tolkien's world talk. People who are kind of in tune to the whole fate thing, the whole doom thing, who recognize the work of Providence, who know that there's a plan, and that their actions are only one part of this larger plan, that they are not, in in fact, making everything up as they go along, that there is a larger script, and yet that their own choices matter, that their own choices make up part of that script. So here's Tuor, in one sense, saying, okay, you know, I see which direction the wind is blowing here, right? I, I, I see what I'm supposed to do, so fine, I'll do it. 
that's in one sense what Tuor is saying. Um, but, you know, could he have done otherwise? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think he could. But again, what Tolkien is showing us is the combination of these things. The fate that has brought him here and his own choice that connects with it. Um, yeah, yeah. As John, uh, John, uh, John Deedle says, uh, Tuor has already decided to do great things by the spring. Um, he, saw, he saw the sign of the swans and followed them. This is just the next step. Yes, and each step along that way is his choice. Notice when Olmo chides him for tarrying, right? Um, you didn't come as quickly as you could have done, right? You tarried along the way. Um, this shows Tuor's not just following a script, right? His, his, his path is not predestined in that sort of rigid sense. Things are under his control. His own movements, his own actions, are his own choices. And he's exercised his choice. One of his choices was to hang out along the way, right? To really appreciate the scenery until he sees the swans. And it's like, oh, okay, I've tarried too long. I really, I, I, I really should keep going, right? Um, but his, so his, his actions already have received, his choice has already received uh, a consequence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Elliot says, <clears throat> Olmo knew that Tuor would choose to accept his doom, yet, tu- yet Tuor still did have a choice. Exactly. Exactly, Elliot. I think that's precisely how it works. Um, it's all in Boethius. It's all in Boethius. Um, then here's Tuor when he meets Veronwe. I do not bid you lead me further than the gate, said Tuor. There doom shall strive with the council of, of Olmo, and if Turgon will not receive me, then my errand will be ended, and doom shall prevail. But as for my right to seek Turgon, I am Tuor, son of Huor, and kin to Hurin, whose names Turgon will not forget. And I seek also by the command of Olmo. Will Turgon forget that which he spoke to him of old? Remember that the last hope of the Noldor cometh from the sea? Or again, when peril is nigh, one shall come from Nevrast to warn thee? I am he that should come, and I am arrayed thus in the gear that was prepared for me. Tuor marveled to hear himself speak so, for the words of Olmo to Turgon at his going from Nevrast were not known to him before, nor to any save the hidden people. Therefore the more amazed was Veronwe, but he turned away and looked toward the sea, and he sighed. Um, we don't have time to talk about it much, but it's fascinating to me that we get that one, that extra element, which, uh, which really only comes in here uh, in this version of the story. It's not in the Silmarillion version, it's not in the Book of Lost Tales version. Veronwe's own unwillingness. Um, he doesn't want to go back to Gondolin. Um, but he does. He too submits to the doom that he sees unfolding before him um, and makes the free choice not to follow. He's even sworn an oath. Big deal, right? Um, in the Silmarillion context. He swore an oath when he was at sea. If I ever get back to land, I am going to go down into the south and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire and I'm going to go live where it's nice and quiet and peaceful and that's what I'm going to do if ever I make it back to land. And now as soon as he makes it back to land, he has to break that 
that oath uh, and instead submit to the doom which he sees unfolding here before his eyes. Um, But the interesting thing here is, again, to see yet another way. Notice there's a kind of escalation here, right? In the first passage that we were looking at, Tuor's has impulses in his heart, which we're told are placed there by uh, uh, by uh, by Olmo, and then in the second one we've got this whole scene set by Olmo. We got the you know the armor and the sun and everything, and he's like, okay, I get it, fine, I take the tube upon myself, right? And now he's not even in charge of his own voice anymore. We got, you know, Tuor separated from himself. Tuor, Mar- Tuor marveled to hear himself speak so. He's like, what am I saying? I didn't know I knew that. Um, Omo is now speaking through him with his voice. He is no longer... In that moment, Tuor is not driving the bus anymore, right? Omo is speaking through him. Um, so we can see in that one sense an escalation of Omo's direct activity in controlling Tuor and working through him as his instrument. But even here, um, I think, I don't think that we have Tuor's own choice being, his own will um, being, being abrogated. This is him, you know, he has signed up for this. When he accepted the doom of that armor, the doom that he accepted was to be a vessel, was to be a messenger. Um, uh, was to to be, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to keep from quoting Arendry and the Arundel poem that Bilbo sings in Rivendell. Um, he he he's he's going to be a messenger. Um, that's his job. So, is Olmo working through him? Yeah. Is he, you know, he, so he's no longer saying these things, but it was not Olmo speaking through him when he accepted the doom. He was called to that, he was placed to that, but he accepted it. Um, and, uh, and he is at the same time uttering prophecy, and in that prophecy, fulfilling the prophecy that was uttered before, and drawing attention to the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, Scott is baiting me to quote Aaron Tree more, but I'm not going to do it, Scott. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, I want to just look at one other image. This picks up, or rather, this is picked up on in Olmo's own uh, description of himself that we looked at first. Um, this was just another one of those passages I wanted to, to, to read because it's another one of those moments that really kind of pop out to me in this story. One of those places where we can see something being raised and you, you can you can you can feel right away this this is this is a theme um this is really directing our attention to something we should be looking at and then we immediately get references to this kind of thing even within the short snippet of the of this novel that we get here um in the in the published unfinished tales we get um we get uh, uh a glimpse of how significant uh this phrase is then, said Gelmir, if you would escape and find the havens in the south, already your feet have been guided on the right road, he says. So I thought, said Tuor, for I followed a sudden spring of water in the hills, until it joined this treacherous stream. But now I know not whither to turn, for it has gone into darkness. Through darkness one may come to the light, said Gelmir. 
Yet one will walk under the sun while one may, said Tuor. You know, Tuor wanting nothing to do with symbolism <laughs> right now, right? Gelmir is speaking on a different level. Through darkness one may come to the light, right? He means that literally in the sense that there's a tunnel, right? But, uh, but at the same time, he is... Uh, you know, what he's saying has much greater significance to our... No, 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 actually, the light's preferable, right? I'll stay in the sun if I can, thanks. But since you are of that people, tell me if you can, where lies the gate of the Noldor? For I have sought it long, ever since Anil, my foster father of the Grey Elves, spoke of it to me. Then the elves laughed and said, Your search is ended, for we have ourselves just passed that gate. There it stands before you. And they pointed to the arch into which the water flowed. Come now. Through darkness you shall come to the light. We will set your feet on the road, but we cannot guide you far, for we are sent back to the lands whence we fled upon an urgent errand. And we will read more about their errand, of course, uh, in the next couple weeks. But fear not, said Gelmir. A great doom is written upon your brow, and it shall lead you far from these lands, far indeed from Middle-earth, as I guess. That, by the way, is one of the passages which leaves me to guess that Tuor passing far indeed from Middle-earth was in fact going to be the end point of this story if we had gotten there. Through darkness one may come to the light. Um, This, as I said, sounds to me like a theme, you know, as the sort of uh, motto of this entire story. Even in this section, we can see that reiterated again and again. Not only is it repeated here, and of course, it's not just that he has to go through darkness to get to the light. He has to follow the water through the darkness to get to the light. Again, he's got to submit himself to doom, uh, to the will of Olmo, in order to himself get to the light and to bring light to others. And we see this being repeated not just through this gate, through darkness into light, he's going to go through another gate, right, through the gate of Gondolin, through darkness into light, um, in a larger sense. If we had gotten to the fall of Gondolin itself, that too would have been Tuor going through that time of darkness and death and destruction and to the light uh, uh, afterwards. So I think that this um, is, uh, is clearly... Um, a, a major, a, a major theme. Again, we can see it repeated even within, um, within this part. So what? So okay, Mister Threw Darkness into Light. What's his job exactly? Yeah, he's a messenger. He's a vessel. Okay, um, but more about this hope that he's supposed to bring. Then Turgon. Sh- this is him talking to Ulmo. Then Turgon shall not stand against Morgoth, as all the Eldar yet hope," said Tuor. That is, he's got to go warn Turgon that Turgon's going to fall? That sounds bad. Boy, so you're, the, you're and your job is to be the bearer of really bad news. And what wouldst thou of me, Lord, if I come now to Turgon? For though I am indeed willing to do as my father and stand by that king in his need, yet of little avail shall I be, a mortal man alone, among so many and so valiant of the high folk of the West. Tuar has a, reflesh, a refreshingly low opinion of himself, right? Um, unlike his cousin, who thinks quite a lot of himself, though with some justification. Again, more on Tuar's cousin next week. But um, Tuar does not think that much of himself, right? And says, okay, um, hang on now. Uh, I'm 
being sent to Gondolin, what kind of a difference can I really make? I mean, okay, I can deliver the message, but, um, uh, you know, what am I... Uh, I certainly, I'm not going to be... It's like, my being there is going to be the difference between Turgon standing and Turgon falling. If I choose to send thee, Tuor, son of Huor, then believe not that thy one sword is not worth the sending. For the valor of the Edain the elves shall ever remember as the ages lengthen, marveling that they gave life so freely, of which they had on earth so little. But it is not for thy valor only that I send thee, but to bring into the world a hope beyond thy sight, and a light that shall pierce the darkness. Um, but it is not for thy valor only that I send thee. Notice then, it is partly for his valor, right? He doesn't say, but you know, actually thy valor has nothing to do with it, Tuor. Um, it's not for thy valor only that I send thee. Um, and, you know, again, when Tuor says, you know, of little avail shall I be a mortal man alone, almost response is not, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, you're right. Uh, no, it's like, actually, you know, don't underestimate. Um, you know, don't think, don't believe that thy one sword is not worth the sending, right? Actually, it is, and it is going to make a difference. And again, we will see, assuming the, 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 the progress of the fall of Gondolin and the events in the fall of Gondolin were going to fall out in anything like the way that they fell out <clears throat> in the Book of Lost Tales version of the story back in the teens, Tuor's sword is in fact going to be very significant, is going to make a difference between life and death, is going to be very largely responsible, not for saving Gondolin, but for preserving a remnant from Gondolin. Had Tuor not been there, they would never have escaped. Those, who, those few who did escape would never have escaped. Um, so Tuor's valor is indeed going to play a role. Again, not to preserve, not to, to save Gondolin from being sacked, but to preserve those few who are in, uh, who, who are in the sacking, uh, to to help them to escape. Um, but okay, but it's not only for thy valor, and apparently not only as a messenger if his valor is also part of it. So he's got to deliver the message. That's you know, the whole armor deal. That's 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 the whole initial concept. I've got a message for you to deliver to Turgon. Straight. Okay, not quite straight. Almost straight. Uh, from uh, my lips to his ears. But also, your valor is going to play a part. You've got another job to do while you're in Gondolin. Oh, and by the way, there's a third thing. Right? It is not only for thy valor that I send thee, but to bring into the world a hope beyond thy sight, and a light that shall pierce the darkness. Also, you have to beget a very important kid, right? Make a baby tour, says Scott. Exactly. Um, his his uh, big job is to produce Arendel, as John says. Um, yes, yes. Um, Brianna is reminded of the passage in Exodus chapter 4 when Moses is talking to God and God is telling him he's got to go and, and speak to Pharaoh and be uh, be God's mouth. And uh, Moses says, you know, I'm not eloquent. I'm really not good at this. Um, one of the passages there has often been interpreted as, as Mo- when he says, I, am, I have a slow tongue, um, uh, 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 that's often interpreted as Moses actually saying he's got a speech impediment, that Moses actually spoke uh, with a significant stutter. Um, and God says, uh, 
um, you know, who designed the mouth and everything? I'm, I'm, I, I'm all over this. I know what's going on, right? That sending of the divine messenger, there is certainly a parallel there. I think that that's, you know, we have to be careful not to sort of to to make any sloppy identifications, but there is no question that the appearance of Olmo to Tuor and his designating him as his messenger and putting words in his mouth um, has... uh, I I think we are fully justified in thinking about and comparing that both, I would say, to Moses in the burning bush and also to Pentecost in the book of Acts uh, in the New Testament. I think that those things are definitely involved. But, anyway... Back to Tuor's baby. Uh, Back to bringing into the world a hope beyond thy sight and a light that shall pierce the darkness. Um, What does that mean? Well, hang on for a second. Let's, Let's look backwards for a minute, because this is not the first reference we have had to this. Back to the Silmarillion. Huor. Tuor's dad's final words that we get. Anyway. The field was lost, but still Hurin and Huor and the remnant of the house of Hador stood firm with Turgon of Gondolin, and the hosts of Morgoth could not yet win the pass of Sirion. Then Hurin spoke to Turgon, saying, Go now, Lord, while time is, for in you lives the last hope of the Eldar, and while Gondolin stands, Morgoth shall still know fear in his heart. But Turgon answered, Not long now can Gondolin be hidden, and being discovered it must fall. Then Huor spoke, and said, Yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. I say This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death. It's like I'm being inspired when I'm speaking to you here. You know, while we're standing by Syrian and everything with Oma... Anyway, this I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death. Though we part here forever, I shall not look on your and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. His last words appear to be a prophecy of the birth of Eärendil. Pretty clearly, from you and from me a new star shall arise. Tuor is again that instrument. Um, and yes, Scott, men, men about to die do have visions, and the Edain do sometimes have foretellings upon them, as we see happen even to Aragorn several times. So none of that should surprise us. Um, but, um, so we have this same foretelling, this, same, this foretelling of the star, the star of high hope that Eärendil will be to the people of Middle-earth. So back to uh, a hope beyond thy sight, a light that shall pierce the darkness here in these words, describing Eärendil. But notice also, this works on several different levels. Tuor, one job, one place that Tuor is going to be. Tuor is a parallel to his father. Let me say this a different way. Huor, in this moment, when he is standing and giving his life to defend, um, and I should explain for those of you not intimately familiar with the Silmarillion, the Nirnaith Arnoidiad was the most disastrous battle of the First Age. Uh, almost everybody died. Uh, Turgon came out of Gondolin and led his people to the battle, and that seemed like a great idea for a little while, but then everything went south, and uh, and everyone else has died, and they're retreating, and Hurin and, H- and, and Huor 
the brothers, fathers of Tuor and of Turin, um, are are with the last of the men of Dor Loman, uh, marching with them to escape. Hurin and Huor decide, okay, we're gonna we're gonna stand here and we're gonna block the armies. We're gonna guard his rear so that Turgon and the elves of Gondolin can escape, not only get away and not be overtaken, but get away and return back to Gondolin without being followed, without Morgoth finding out where he's going to. They're going to be able to just vanish, um, and therefore Morgoth will not yet discover. This is what Turgon is saying, um, you know, when Turgon, I'm going to go back to, to Turgon here, um, when Turgon says, not long now can Gondolin be hidden, and being discovered it must fall. Even if we get away here today, I, you know, I can't imagine, like, we're st- they're, 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 the orcs are hot on our tail, right? How are we going to be able to get back to Gondolin without them knowing right where we're going? And so, Hurin and Huar say, leave that to us. We'll, we'll hold them off, and we'll hold them off for long enough that you can get away, and get clean away, and get a start, and have them not be able to follow you. And that's what happens. So, here is Huor, standing between Turgon and destruction at the hands of Morgoth. And in doing that, that was, of course, itself a great act. So great that Turgon itself, you know, there's that reference that Tuor makes, um, you know, when he was talking to, uh, when he was talking to, to Veronwe, when he meets him, you know, and says, I am Tuor, son of Huor, and kin to Hurin, whose names Turgon will not forget, right? Um, so on the one hand, this sort of helps to give Tuor his entry into Gondolin, even if he were not, you know, the, uh, the messenger of Olmo, um, uh, Turgon is likely to look uh, favorably upon Tuor, because he's Huor's son. But, of course, here... Huor was prefiguring what Tuor is going to do. Like his father before him, Tuor is standing between Turgon and death. Huor says, this is your last chance. I will stand here. I will offer up my life to stand here and permit you to escape. Now Tuor is going to show up and says, I have a message from the Lord of Waters. Get out. Now is the time. Remember what I told you before? Uh, not to get too attached to Gondolin and to be ready to leave when the time has come. The time has come. Go if you want to, if you want to escape with your lives. And Turgon will not go. Um, so, uh, so again, but, but we have Tuor uh, serving a, a parallel role um, to what Huor did before. But of course, at the same time, we have Tuor prefiguring his son, Eärendil. Um, which, although instead of instead of coming from the west uh, and delivering the message of the Valar, he's going to the west and delivering the message to the Valar from the people. But again, we can see that uh, Eärendil as messenger recapitulating uh, the role of his father, Tuor. The way in which Tolkien sort of layers this and builds upon the fate of Huor to the role of Tuor and prefiguring the role of Eärendil. I find really cool and just sort of mind-blowing the more I think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Tom hears in the hope that they have not looked for and have not prepared. Tom uh, Hillman hears in that an echo of Aonwe's words to Eärendil when Eärendil arrives, you know, that he is uh, uh, the looked-for that cometh at unawares, uh, you know, the long for that uh, that uh, 
I'm forgetting the second half of the code. The looked for that cometh at unawares, uh, the longed for that cometh beyond hope. Is that it? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's um, Olmo does seem to be pointing ahead to that. But again, but but the important thing to notice, Tuor is not just you know the carrier of the sperm that will someday beget Arendel. His job is more important than that. And, and it might look, again, to, 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 to him, um, you know, to Tuor, that is, in this moment, it looks, you know, okay, what's the point of me? Right? I'm going to deliver... I'm going to deliver the message. Well, okay, it's going to turn out Turgon's not going to listen to, to the message. So Tuor could sit there and be like, well, okay, um guess my fate wasn't all that <laughs> cool after all, right? Um, to deliver, to be the one who delivers the message that gets ignored. Okay, great. And so he's like, you know, what good is my sword going to be? You know, will I be able to help? Well, no. What can I do to help? And, uh, and so again, the way that Olmo talks about all of these things, no, your role as messenger is important, even if Turgon doesn't obey it. It's important. Having you there is going to make a difference. Um, Turgon might not listen, but others are going to listen. Um, uh, Idril is going to be primarily involved in making the escape route from Gondolin that enables anybody from Gondolin to escape. Had Tuor not come with his warning, uh, Idril probably doesn't do that. Um, we also get, uh, and again, the fact that Tuor and his valor is going to participate in helping to preserve anything of Gondolin. Um, and then, of course, the role that Tuor does not see yet at all, which is the fact that he's going to be the father of Eärendil. Um, yes, good. Kevin is pointing out how that image of the light piercing the darkness, that description of uh, of Eärendil there, um, is like a combination of the you know going to light through darkness and to those military metaphors, the, the, the rift in the armor of fate and the breach in the wall of doom. Um, you know, both of those things get kind of combined to describe Eärendil and the role that he is ultimately going to play. There's a lot more we could talk about uh, with Tuor, and I know that a bunch of you have raised questions. I'll be going back through many of the topics that you guys have raised, um, and uh, I, I may I may bring one or two in at the beginning of class next time. I may save them uh, for our first Q and A session. But anyway, I want to thank you for your uh, your comments and observations. Um, just a, a few quick announcements. First, again, just to make sure everybody knows how this works. Uh, tonight's session is being recorded. I'm going to post both a video and an audio recording, so if you want to be able to, uh, to, to, to watch it again or, again, to tell other people about it who weren't able to be here tonight, um, the, the, uh, a video recording so you can see the passages of text at the same time as you're listening to it will be available as well as an audio recording. Um, those... Those will be able to be found in three different places. Um, the same recordings we'll post in three different places. One will be on the main website, so that's the uh, mythgard.org slash academy. Um, at the, on the Unfinished Tales page, you'll be able to download the audio and video um, recording straight from there. Also, uh, on the iTunes feed, the Mythgard Academy iTunes feeds, if you go to iTunes and search for Mythgard, you will find the iTunes Academy feed. All of these recordings and uh, the Lord of the Rings classes that I've just finished um, in the fall, those are all there, too. 
And also, we have a course set up for the Unfinished Tales class on iTunes U. So if you're on iTunes U, you can go to iTunes U and subscribe to the class there, and you can get all the recordings automatically through that. So, um, <clears throat> that is... Um, so to, just to make sure everybody understands uh, how to get or where to refer uh, people if people ask about the recordings. Uh, finally, I wanted to make one other uh, announcement um, for sort of other Tolkien podcast news. I am uh, going to be starting Season 3 of Riddles in the Dark with Dave Kale and Trish Lambert uh, and Laura Burkholtz coming up uh, this week, actually. So on Friday, Friday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, um, we're going to do the first episode episode of season three, uh, and every two weeks thereafter. Um, so I wanted to make sure that everybody, uh, knows about that. I'll be posting the link for that very soon. Um, that will happen tomorrow. Uh, so those of you who are, um, uh, those of you who are Riddles in the Dark fans, uh, will be, uh, will be able to start up the discussions for season three. Thanks, everybody, again for joining me. It has been uh, delightful to have so many of you here uh, with me tonight. Uh, uh, thank you for your patience, and I look forward to... Okay, I was about to say I look forward to talking about Turin next week. That might perhaps be saying too much. The Turin story is so painful that I can't say I, I, am, I uh, am uh, uh looking forward to it in one sense, but it certainly will be fun to talk about it together. So, uh, thanks everybody for joining me, and I will see you next week. Bye!